You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for downloading the 17th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. First of all, sorry this episode is late, uh, but hopefully this being a long-ish show will help you forgive us for being overdue. In fact, we'll see how things shake out, but this may turn out to be our longest episode yet. Okay, um, so anyway, as you probably already know, this episode is the second installment of a special two-part biographical sketch of Abraham Lincoln. We wanted to bring his life up to speed with where we are on the podcast timeline. And so with the last show, we covered Mr. Lincoln's life from his birth in Kentucky in February 1809 up to his move to Springfield in April 1837. And in this episode, we'll go from 1837 up to 1858, which is when the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates took place. And those debates will be the subject of the next upcoming episode. But in this show, um, we've divided the material up into three sections. Lincoln the lawyer, Lincoln gets married, and Lincoln the politician. So with that introduction... Abraham Lincoln was 28 years old when he pulled up stakes in New Salem and in April 1837 moved to Springfield, a bustling metropolis of 1,500 people. As we mentioned near the end of the last show, Lincoln joined the law office of John Todd Stewart after he moved to Springfield. Stewart was a prominent local attorney, and he had encouraged Lincoln, the budding politician, to read for the law. Back in those days, most aspiring lawyers apprenticed themselves to an established law firm for a year or so, but Lincoln's schooling, or lack thereof, and his dismal financial situation made that impractical. So while still living in New Salem and serving part-time in the state legislature and trying to earn a living, Abraham Lincoln educated himself in the law, mostly using books he borrowed from Stewart. Years later, when someone asked him about the best way to acquire a thorough knowledge of the law, Lincoln recommended the same approach that he'd employed. He said, quote, The mode is very simple, though laborious and tedious. It is only to get the books and read and study them carefully. Begin with Blackstone's commentaries, and after reading it carefully through, say twice, take up Chitty's pleading, Greenleaf's evidence, stories, equity, and etc. in succession. Work, work, work is the main thing. End quote. 
To receive a license to practice law in Illinois back then, you just needed to round up some members of the bar who would quiz you on your legal knowledge and then vouch for your good moral character. In September 1836, Abraham Lincoln went through such an examination, and he was duly admitted to the Illinois bar. And although there seems to be a common misconception that Lincoln was only an undistinguished middling lawyer, in reality he was a hard-working and very successful attorney. Well, he was that. Over the 23 years that he practiced law, Lincoln was involved in over 5,000 cases, and during those years he became one of the best-known attorneys in the state of Illinois. In over two decades of legal work, Abraham Lincoln took on all sorts of cases. He would ably represent a varied list of clients, both murderer and crime victim, both slave and slave owner, and both penniless widow and giant railroad corporation. As we said a minute ago, Lincoln's first law partner was John Todd Stewart, who proved to be a supportive mentor to Lincoln. Lincoln remained Stewart's partner until 1841, when he became the junior partner to another leading Springfield attorney, Stephen Logan. Nine years older than Lincoln, Logan, like Stewart, was a fine mentor, and he helped Lincoln become a better lawyer. A young relative of some of Lincoln's New Salem friends, William Herndon, read law in Logan's office, and in 1844, when Logan decided to go into partnership with his son, Lincoln hung out his own shingle and asked Billy Herndon to join him. Herndon agreed, and for the next 16 years, the two men would be law partners there in Springfield, and Herndon would be Lincoln's closest confidant. Back when Abraham Lincoln practiced law, rural Illinois was too thinly settled to have a courthouse in every town, so twice a year the court came to the people. Lincoln took particular delight in riding this circuit of small country towns with a close-knit group of fellow lawyers and judges. Lincoln was never a very graceful horseman, and most of his height was in his long legs, so when he rode the circuit on his horse, Old Tom, his size 14 boots would dangle far below Old Tom's belly and practically skim the prairie grass. Someone said he resembled a country farmer riding into town wearing his country best. Riding the judicial circuit twice a year was physically demanding. The vast Eighth Circuit, which Abraham Lincoln traveled, covered roughly 12,000 square miles, and so was about the size of the state of Connecticut. Traveling the circuit was not only physically demanding, it took Lincoln away from Springfield and his family for long stretches of time. Some people speculate that part of Lincoln's motivation for riding the circuit was the fact that it did take him away from home for extended periods, and so they say Lincoln didn't mind this at all since he and Mary Lincoln had an unhappy marriage. But in reality, Abraham and Mary were actually quite devoted to one another. The real reason Lincoln rode the circuit is simply because he had to, because in rural Illinois, that's where the cases were. It is true that sometimes when his colleagues went home on the weekend, Lincoln would remain out on the circuit working, but while some people point to this as further evidence of marital discord, the truth is more probably that, as his later achievements testify to, Abraham Lincoln was highly ambitious, more so than his peers in rural Illinois, and he believed the best way to one day realize his ambitions was to work, work, work. And with regard to his high ambitions, Lincoln's travels over the years did have the benefit of allowing him to network and build up a long list of acquaintances and political contacts. While riding the circuit was physically demanding and took him away from home for long stretches of time, 
Lincoln was truly delighted in the camaraderie he enjoyed with the close-knit group of country lawyers and judges. But Lincoln was set apart from most of his peers in the legal profession, and from most of the rest of the crowd in rural Illinois, in that he didn't drink alcohol, and he didn't play cards or gamble, and he didn't smoke or chew tobacco. But what Abraham Lincoln did indulge in was joke and storytelling. In taverns and boarding houses across the countryside, Lincoln was famous for his seemingly inexhaustible supply of jokes and stories. And this is really interesting to me, because while in many ways Abraham Lincoln was a closed book, he was very self-controlled, rarely allowing others to have access to his innermost thoughts or feelings, but then his inherent good nature came through so clearly in his entertaining story and joke-telling. And that talent of his put people at ease and never failed to amuse and charm people. Well, except for maybe a couple of his cabinet members, but they were just old fuddy-duddies. As a great example of Lincoln's store of anecdotes, if you've read Doris Kern Goodwin's Team of Rivals or seen the recent Steven Spielberg movie about the 16th president, then you know about one of Lincoln's favorite stories the one about Ethan Allen visiting England and the portrait of George Washington in the outhouse. Good stuff. But um, seriously, Lincoln's gift for storytelling was not only a, a social skill that he used to entertain and connect with people, but it was also an intellectual tool that he would cleverly use to persuade someone or to diffuse an argument. In the courtroom, Lincoln's storytelling definitely helped him sway juries, but it was his unassailable logic and his studied command of language that enabled him to demolish opposing attorneys' arguments. Probably his most famous case was the Almanac trial in 1858. That's when Lincoln was defending a man named Duff Armstrong. As Jerry Prokopovich tells the story in his book, Did Lincoln Own Slaves? One night, Duff and his buddies had been out drinking. A fight started. Somebody hit somebody else on the head with something, and suddenly there's a dead body on the ground. A prosecution witness said that he saw young Armstrong strike the fatal blow, and under cross-examination from Lincoln testified that it was he was able to see the event in the moonlight. Lincoln then produced an almanac showing that the witness was wrong about that detail because the moon was too low in the sky at the time of the murder to have given much light. This discredited the witness in the eyes of the jury, and Armstrong was acquitted. Prokopovich then goes on to point out, Overlooked in the cleverness of Lincoln's tactics is that they were used to free a man who almost surely had committed the murder in question. This was not unethical on Lincoln's part, as the duty of a lawyer is to provide zealous representation for his or her clients, not to judge their guilt or innocence. The judge and jury do that. Like most country attorneys, Lincoln and Herndon couldn't be too picky about taking on the cases that came their way. Sometimes their clients were innocent, and sometimes they were guilty, but the partners believed that they all were entitled to representation. In 1841, Lincoln appeared before the Illinois Supreme Court in the case of Bailey v. Cromwell, in which he successfully defended a young black woman against being sold into slavery. But six years later, Lincoln represented a slaveholder who was trying to recover his runaway slaves. The man, named Matson, had brought his slaves from Kentucky into southern Illinois, where they ran away, 
and then some local abolitionists helped them sue for their freedom. Well, the court did rule in favor of the runaway slaves and their freedom, and it was said that after the ruling, Matson promptly returned to Kentucky without paying Lincoln. In his biography of Lincoln, David Herbert Donald says, quote, Neither the Matson case nor the Cromwell case should be taken as an indication of Lincoln's views on slavery. His business was law, not morality. End quote. As we said at the top of the show, Abraham Lincoln was a hard-working, successful lawyer, and he eventually became one of the best-known attorneys in the state of Illinois. And the talented, self-educated country boy's hard work and success allowed him to prosper financially. At a time when a day laborer could expect to earn no more than $400 a year, Lincoln earned approximately $2,000 a year. The 1860 census would list his assets as $5,000 in property and a personal estate of $12,000. But after his move to Springfield, Abraham Lincoln not only became a respected attorney, he also married, bought a home, and became a father. So, the story goes that Abraham Lincoln and Mary Todd met at a dance in Springfield one evening in December 1839. But Lincoln had probably had his eye on the pretty and clever young woman for a while before he walked up to her at that party and blurted out, Miss Todd, I want to dance with you in the worst way. Later, Mary would mischievously tell her cousin, and he certainly did. For Lincoln disliked dancing, and apparently it showed when he was out on the dance floor. One acquaintance said that when Lincoln danced, he gave the impression of being Old Father Jupiter bending down from the clouds to see what was going on. Mary Todd was in Springfield visiting her older sister, Elizabeth, who was married to the son of the governor of Illinois. Another of Mary's sisters, Frances, also lived in Springfield, as did an uncle, Dr. John Todd, and three cousins, including John Todd Stewart, Abraham Lincoln's first law partner. Mary Elizabeth Todd was born on December 13, 1859, in Lexington, Kentucky. Which is a place Tracy and I know very well since we went to grad school in Kentucky. That's where we did our courting. We did, yes. Anyway, the Todds were one of the leading families in Kentucky, and Mary grew up as a child of privilege, But when Mary was six years old, her mother died after the birth of her seventh child. Two years later, when Mary was eight, her father married a wealthy younger woman from nearby Frankfurt. Over the next 15 years, Mary's stepmother would have nine children, and it seems she greatly favored her own children over her stepchildren. Since Mary's father was often away on business for extended periods of time, and since she received little enough affection from her stepmother, Mary all in all had an unhappy childhood. Mary's father was uncommon for his time in that he encouraged the education of his daughters as well as his sons. And so, unlike most young women of her day, Mary Todd received a fine classical education, including learning French. Besides that, the Todds were one of the foremost political families in Kentucky, and as prominent Whigs, they counted Henry Clay as a family friend. Mary developed a remarkable interest in and knowledge of politics, which, along with her education, also set her apart from most of the other women of her day. Growing up in Lexington, Mary Todd would have encountered slavery on a daily basis. 
The Todds themselves, being a wealthy white family, were slave owners, using their slaves for work both inside and outside the family home. And besides that, Mary would have walked right past Lexington's busy slave market as she walked to and from school. In his biography of Abraham Lincoln, Ronald C. White Jr. says that, quote, By the time Mary was 18, she was considered by her friends, female and male, a pretty young woman. Five feet, two inches tall, with soft brown hair, she had a broad forehead, a small upturned nose, blue eyes, and a rosy complexion. Mary exhibited strong-minded determination to get her way, and the inner circle of her family knew her temper and tongue. A prominent chin gave the impression of a resolute personality. Her hands darted impulsively in gestures as she spoke. End quote. Well, in 1837, as we mentioned before, Mary Todd decided to travel to Springfield for an extended visit with family who lived there. After arriving in Illinois, Mary apparently attracted more than a few suitors. Stephen Douglas, who we've mentioned before on the podcast, in 1837, he'd recently arrived in Springfield himself, and tradition says that he and Mary Todd were often seen about town together. When Abraham Lincoln and Mary Todd met at that party in December 1837, one can imagine how they looked out on the dance floor, since the refined and polished young lady was well over a foot shorter than the gangly and awkward Lincoln. From the first, they probably seemed an oddly matched couple. The differences between Abraham and Mary's social standing were just as great as the obvious physical disparity. Where Lincoln came from a poor, humble background, the Todds were a well-off, proud clan. Lincoln once noted that one D was enough for God's name, but not for the Todds. <laughs> well, once Lincoln started to court her, Mary's family wasn't shy about voicing their disapproval of the plain, unsophisticated young lawyer and state legislator. But while their differences may have been obvious, there were also similarities that led each to recognize they were very much alike. Both valued learning and had worked hard to achieve an education. Their love of learning showed in a shared intellectual curiosity. And then they both loved poetry and would often read poems aloud to each other. And of course, with Mary being the daughter of one of Kentucky's leading Whigs and interested in politics, they both had a passionate uh, interest in politics. Whatever the spark between them, it must have been a powerful attraction because at some point in 1840, Lincoln pulled ahead of Mary's other prospective suitors, and their relationship advanced from friendship to courting to an agreement that they might marry. But then by the end of that year, for reasons that are unclear, their relationship suddenly fell apart. Lincoln's breakup with Mary plunged him into a pit of despair. Lincoln's melancholy was so severe that at one point his friend Joshua Speed removed Lincoln's razor for fear of what he might do. Abraham sent a letter to Mary's cousin, his former law partner, John Todd Stewart, in which he said, I am now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on the earth. Well, Mary was also still pining for Lincoln, and her feelings for him didn't diminish over time, and yet it took the determined intervention of a mutual friend to bring the couple back together again. Sometime in 1842, that friend, the wife of a local newspaper editor, invited Abraham and Mary to her home, each not knowing the other would be there. 
But that encounter led to Abraham and Mary reconciling, and they began to see one another again. Their relationship progressed once again until November 4, 1842, when quite suddenly the couple announced they intended to marry that very day. Apparently that morning Lincoln burst in on the Reverend Charles Dresser while the good Reverend was eating breakfast at home and exclaimed, I want to get hitched tonight. Just as surprised as the preacher, Mary's sister, Elizabeth Edwards, insisted that the hastily arranged ceremony take place in she and her husband's house. And so at 7 p.m. that evening, 33-year-old Abraham Lincoln and 24-year-old Mary Todd were wed in the parlor of the Edwards' home. One week after the hurried wedding ceremony, Lincoln wrote to a friend, and at the end of the letter he said, Nothing new here except my marrying, which to me is a matter of profound wonder. I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The newly married couple's first lodgings in Springfield were at the Globe Tavern, a local boarding house and saloon where Abraham and Mary rented a single 8-foot by 14-foot room for $4 a week, taking their meals with their fellow boarders. A famous story is sometimes told about the Lincoln's stay at the Globe to illustrate how difficult Mary was to live with and how rude she was to the other boarders. But we're not going to tell that story, right? Right. Being newly married is hard enough for many couples. But if you add to that the fact that Mary Lincoln was used to living well and residing in fine homes, and she went from that lifestyle to living in one room in a boarding house slash tavern where she had to eat with strangers, then I actually think there's any number of emotional young women who would have a difficult time adjusting to this situation. Right? Right. Added to that, she was pregnant during their stay at the Globe, so who knows what her hormones were doing, right? Right. Well, actually, there's been some speculation on that front. Not that Mary was pregnant, because she definitely was, 
but about the fact that Abraham and Mary were wed on November 4th, and their first child, Robert Todd Lincoln, was born on August 1st. And for those of you doing the math, yes, that's several days shy of nine months. But anyway, not long after Robert's birth, the couple moved out of the globe and rented a small cottage. And then in early 1844, the Lincolns purchased a modest house at 8th and Jackson Streets in Springfield. In fact, it was the very house where Abraham had burst in on the Reverend Dresser and announced his desire to get hitched. Well, Abraham, Mary, and nine-month-old Robert moved into their new home in May 1844. And over the years, the Lincolns would have quite a bit of remodeling done and have additions built onto the house. The most extensive alterations took place in 1855 when an entire second story was added. And that house on 8th and Jackson Streets was the only home Abraham and Mary owned and can still be seen today at the Lincoln Home National Historic Site in Springfield. That house in Springfield would be the Lincoln family's home for the next 17 years. A second child, Edward Baker Lincoln, was born in March 1846, but Eddie, as they called him, fell ill when he was three and a half years old, and after 52 days of suffering, the little boy died in February 1850, probably of tuberculosis. After Eddie's death, the Lincolns had two more sons, Willie and Tad. William Wallace Lincoln, born in 1850, would die of typhoid in 1862 while the Lincolns were living in the White House. The son who was most like his father, some people believe Willie was Abraham Lincoln's favorite child, but any, at any rate, his death, like Eddie's, would leave both parents in deep grief. Thomas, or Tad as he was called, was born in 1853, and Mary and Abraham spoiled him terribly, probably because he had a severe speech impediment, perhaps from a cleft palate. Tad died of pleurisy when he was 18 years old in 1871. And so, sadly, of the Lincoln's four sons, only Robert, the eldest, lived to maturity. Robert, though, would live to the ripe old age of 82. He passed away in 1926, three years after he helped dedicate the Lincoln Memorial. Well, much is often made of Mary Lincoln's complex personality and her sudden mood swings and her inability to cope emotionally with the various tragedies that she experienced. But as might already be obvious, Tracy and I have a good bit of sympathy for Mrs. Lincoln, and so we're not going to be as harsh as some other people when we're discussing her. I mean, I seriously doubt very many of those who seem so willing to criticize Mary Lincoln have themselves had to deal with an unhappy childhood, the death of her mother, and then as an adult, the death of a child, let alone the deaths of several children. And then the poor woman was sitting right next to her husband when an assassin walked up to him and put a bullet in his brain. So my point is, I, I think we can justifiably cut Mary Lincoln some slack. And was she perfect? No. But neither was Abraham Lincoln. Was she difficult to live with at times? Yes. But then so was Lincoln. Did they have a perfect marriage? No. But I don't know any couple that does. Do you? Except for us. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> but that goes without saying. Right. So anyway, while not discounting the difficulties in the Lincoln's relationship, and while acknowledging that they were both complex individuals, 
We just want to emphasize that by all indications, their deep affection for one another only grew stronger throughout the years of their marriage. Abraham and Mary Lincoln, until death parted them, were completely devoted to one another. As we said at the top of the episode, the focus of this third section of the show will be Abraham Lincoln, the politician. Well, we've already talked previously um, about politics and about how Lincoln, running as a Whig, was elected to the Illinois State Legislature. Uh, You'll remember that his second term in the legislature wrapped up with a double victory for Lincoln's Long Nine group in that they succeeded in getting the state capital moved to Springfield, and they pushed through a very ambitious plan for vast public works like canals and railroads that was to be financed by state debt. But then a nationwide financial collapse, known as the Panic of 1837, followed, and that torpedoed the public works plan and worsened the state's debt. Despite that, Lincoln was still personally popular with his constituents, and they elected him to a third term in the legislature in 1838. During that time, he hoped to become Speaker of the House, but that fell through. He remained, however, the floor leader for the state's minority Whigs. In that role, an event took place in December 1840 that embarrassed Lincoln so much that he rarely spoke of it afterward. While the Illinois State Bank was strongly opposed by the majority Democrats, Lincoln and the minority Whigs supported the bank and were were attempting to keep the legislature in session to prevent the bank from going into bankruptcy. Since the Democrats needed the legislature to adjourn to effectively kill the bank through inaction, Lincoln and the Whigs decided they'd simply stay away from the assembly room so a quorum couldn't be met and therefore no vote for adjournment could take place. But when Lincoln and a few compatriots snuck into the back of the assembly room to make certain no other Whigs were present, they were noticed, and the Democrats suddenly realized that the room held just enough legislatures for a quorum. The Democrats quickly locked the doors so Lincoln and his fellow Whigs couldn't leave the room, but a panicked Lincoln led an undignified escape by climbing out of a window and dropping to the ground. The Whigs' inglorious escape, as it turns out, was in vain since the vote for adjournment was held anyway, and so Democrats succeeded in killing off the state bank. Lincoln was elected for a fourth term in the legislature in August 1840, and that summer and fall he stumped across Illinois for the Whig presidential candidate, William Henry Harrison. Rallying behind the slogan, Tippecanoe and Tyler II, the national campaign ended in a victory for the Whigs, But Harrison died within a month of taking office, and as vice president, John Tyler proved to be a disappointing chief executive for the Whigs. And as it turns out, Lincoln's fourth term in the state legislature would be his last. His marriage to Mary Todd and the start of the family meant he needed to enlarge his income, and so Lincoln had to concentrate on building up his law practice. That increased legal workload kept him from seeking re-election in 1842. But there was also another reason for Lincoln's decision. He was beginning to think about running for a seat in the U.S. Congress, representing Illinois' newly formed 7th Congressional District. John Todd Stewart, Lincoln's former law partner, had occupied the seat for the Democrats for two terms prior to redistricting, but Stewart was stepping down. 
and with the redistricting, the seventh now tilted in favor of the Whigs. But Lincoln failed to get his party's nomination. It went instead to his good friend Edward Baker, the namesake of the Lincoln's second son. But Abraham Lincoln was a faithful party man, and he worked on Baker's successful campaign, thereby putting himself in line to follow Baker, since Baker had said he'd only serve a single term in Washington. And just as Lincoln hoped, his loyalty to the party paid off, and on August 3, 1846, he was elected to succeed Baker. Due to the vagaries of the various states' elections back in that day, Lincoln's first session in the U.S. House of Representatives didn't actually begin until December 1847, more than a year after his election. But when he finally arrived in the nation's capital, Lincoln wasn't alone. Defying the convention of the time, Mary Lincoln and the couple's sons accompanied Mr. Lincoln to Washington. Well, Mary, of course, was anxious for her husband's success, But truth be told, Abraham Lincoln really made no lasting mark in Congress during his one and only term as a representative. It can be said he was diligent in attendance and that he sensibly took the measure of his fellow politicians from both above and below the Mason-Dixon line and formed acquaintances that would serve him well in later years when he occupied a big white house on Pennsylvania Avenue. As a U.S. congressman, Lincoln did propose a bill that called for a referendum among citizens of the District of Columbia to approve a plan under which slave owners in the nation's capital would be paid full value to emancipate their slaves, but his proposal met with so little support that he never introduced the bill. During Lincoln's time in Congress, his most notable experience was certainly his decision to take a strong stand against the U.S. war with Mexico. Some of you might remember that we mentioned this back in episode number seven of the podcast. Well, Lincoln's vocal opposition to the Mexican War was a decision that made him deeply unpopular with the folks back in Illinois. His constituents back home thought Lincoln was being unpatriotic by questioning President Polk's motivations with regard to the origins of Americans' war with Mexico. Well, considering this uh, unpopularity, it was probably a good thing that Lincoln, like his predecessor, had pledged even before he left Illinois that he'd only serve a single term in Congress. His stand against the war with Mexico meant he was so out of favor with the voters back home that it's extremely doubtful he would have been re-elected. And so Lincoln's preemptive, self-declared term limit proved to be a blessing, since it allowed him to escape what would have been certain defeat had he mounted a bid for re-election. But after the conclusion of Lincoln's congressional career, there were those in the Whig Party who appreciated Lincoln's opposition to President Polk and who also realized Lincoln's influential position in Illinois politics. So when General Zachary Taylor ran on the Whig ticket and won the presidency in 1848, Taylor's new administration offered Lincoln the reward of the governorship of the Oregon Territory. And Lincoln considered it, But in the end, he declined the offer. Moving to the West Coast at that time in America's history would have been a difficult and dangerous proposition for a family man like Lincoln. And besides that, he was sure the appointment would be a political dead end, since the Oregon Territory had already proven itself to lean strongly Democratic. And so once it became a state, a Whig appointee like Lincoln couldn't expect to be elected to any further office by the citizens of Oregon. 
When Abraham Lincoln returned to Illinois from the nation's capital, he was sure his public career was over, and so he once again devoted his time and energy to building up the Springfield law practice that he shared with Billy Herndon. Over the next half dozen or so years, he became an increasingly successful attorney and thought he'd put politics behind him. But it turns out fate had something else in mind for Mr. Lincoln. As he told it in one of those brief 1860 campaign biographies, from 1849 to 1854, both inclusive, I practiced law more assiduously than ever before. I was losing interest in politics when the repeal of the Missouri Compromise aroused me again. Well, as listeners already know, the man behind what Lincoln chose to call the repeal of the Missouri Compromise was none other than Illinois Senator Stephen Douglas, whose Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854 we've already discussed previously on the podcast. But Abraham Lincoln, roused to action by the act and its consequences, rose up to denounce Douglas and the Democrats, and so Lincoln returned to the political arena. Now, all his life, according to Lincoln, he was an old-time Henry Clay Whig at heart. But even as the Whig party itself started to disintegrate in the 1850s, a new political party was rising up. Founded in the Midwest in 1854 by opponents of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the anti-slavery Republican Party eventually attracted former Whigs, disaffected Northern Democrats, free soilers, and more than a few know-nothings. But since we've already talked about the rise of the Republican Party previously on the podcast, we won't cover that same ground again now. We'll just say that in 1856, at the very first Republican meeting in the state of Illinois, a number of curious spectators were sizing up the new party. One of those spectators was the well-known Springfield attorney, Abraham Lincoln. He obviously liked what he saw and heard, because he was soon a leading Republican in both his home state and across the country. Okay, so we'd be remiss if somewhere in this episode we didn't talk about Lincoln's almost duel with James Shields in 1842, but we weren't sure where to put it in the show, so we're tacking it on to the end here. All right, so this happened in 1842, uh, around the time Lincoln and Mary Todd started to see each other again um, after they'd broken off their engagement. But at that time, Lincoln foolishly wrote some anonymous letters to a local newspaper, and in them he mocked James Shields, who was the state auditor and a prominent Democrat in Illinois. Well, after Lincoln showed a letter to Mary, for some reason she and a girlfriend decided to try their hand at doing the same thing. And so they also penned a couple of anonymous letters ridiculing Shields, and they sent them to the newspaper. Well, Shields, who was known to have a towering temper, demanded to know who was insulting him. And it seems Lincoln allowed the newspaper editor to reveal his name, uh, probably in a gallant attempt by Lincoln to protect Mary and her friend. But so after being told that it was Abraham Lincoln who was his tormentor, Shields confronted Lincoln and challenged him to a duel. Since Shields had issued the challenge, Lincoln could choose the weapons. 
Knowing Shields was reputed to be an outstanding marksman with pistols, Lincoln chose broadswords. Lincoln apparently had some experience with cavalry swords during the Black Hawk War, and he also no doubt realized that with his height and long arms, he would have a decided advantage in reach over the shorter shields. To further emphasize this advantage, Lincoln, Lincoln specified that the duel should take place in an area 10 feet wide by 12 feet deep, divided by a board that neither participant could cross. Since dueling was illegal in Illinois, the two parties agreed to meet just across the Mississippi River in Missouri. Early on Thursday morning, September 22, 1842, both Lincoln and Shields crossed the river in boats and arrived at the dueling ground. So both men were there and ready to rumble, but um, although accounts differ about what happened next, apparently their seconds or some other gentlemen who were there intervened and managed to arrange a peaceable resolution to the matter, and so the duel was averted at literally the last minute. And this entire episode with Shields remained one of Abraham Lincoln's most painful and embarrassing memories. He and Mary agreed never to speak about it. Uh, Years later, during the Civil War, when, by the way, um, Shields served for a period of time as Brigadier General, but anyway, um, an Army officer referred to the long-ago near duel during a discussion with the President, and an obviously displeased Lincoln replied, I do not deny it, but if you desire my friendship... You will never mention it again. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Ronald C. White Jr.'s 2009 biography of Abraham Lincoln. This book is uh, really a beautifully written and, I think, insightful account of Lincoln's life. And uh, to me, it's just a superb rendering of Lincoln. Let me just read the first paragraph of chapter one of this outstanding biography. He signed his name A. Lincoln. A visitor to Abraham Lincoln's Springfield, Illinois home at 8th and Jackson would find A. Lincoln in silvered Roman characters affixed to an octagonal black plate on the front door. All through his life, people sought to complete the A, to define Lincoln, to label or libel him. Immediately after his death and continuing to the present, Americans have tried to explain the nation's most revered president. A. Lincoln continues to fascinate us because he eludes simple definitions and final judgments. So that's from Ronald C. White Jr.'s biography of our 16th president, which is titled A. Lincoln. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations by going to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. The music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the permission of Spiritwood Music. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time for the Lincoln-Douglas debates. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.